everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of December 10th, 2022. I'm Charles I am a filmmaker, and I'm here with uh, Gigi Hawkins, filmmaker. Hello. Editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And filmmaker Todd Blankenship. Hey, how's it going? Uh, this week, we are going to be leading with the Sight & Sound poll that launched a 1,000 memes. If you were not aware that Sight & Sound launched their uh, every decade decannual list of top films you're clearly not on social media with filmmakers because holy shit so many memes uh we're gonna be following that up with uh a season of self-reflective cinema homo cinema cinema that is aware of the art form of cinema uh we've got entries from chazelle and spielberg and sam mendes and we want to talk about it then we're going to kick off next uh, a continuing ai conversation because jesus every time you blink uh, ai is better and it's getting a little creepers and uh, we're going to be wrapping it all up with a quick and very practical Ask No Film School about release forms. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. Our first subject this week. The Sight and Sound poll comes out every 10 years. And if you haven't, the New York Times has an amazing breakdown of the history of the poll. Like, who the best films were in 1952 and 62 and 72 and like... It does that thing the New York Times does better than anybody else of doing visual storytelling where like you can watch films move up the charts and down the charts and you can, and at least like this film has appeared the most time. It's like, there's some things the New York Times does poorly, but that is not one of them. It does that really well. And it's really interesting in that this year, uh, Jean Delman, a film uh, from Chantal Arkman, appeared for the first time on the list in the number one spot, which is a sort of uh, caused my film social media networks to explode with people having responses. One of the best I saw was uh, somebody screenshotting someone else's comment that like, this is the surest sign that the film bros have won. And it's like, I don't know that the film bros are out there rooting for like a feminist study of women's labor in the domestic space in 1970s Belgium. Like that's not what I associate with film bros. And really it means that the term film bro has no meaning at this point. You know, I, I, I have to fully admit it. It's not a film I had previously seen. It is a film that is now on my list to see. Uh, Chantal Ackerman, I, we can't have all seen everything all the time, always. And one of the purposes of these lists is to get people to see things that they otherwise might not have seen. So I'm excited to see it. Uh, there's been a lot of takes. A lot of takes. Can I just jump right in on that? Because to me, that was the biggest, the most interesting thing about this. I wrote about it for the site because I was the no film school site. If you don't know, um, but <laughs> because I was just blown Wait, away. Our podcast is associated with a website. There's a website loosely associated with this podcast. Um, so Paul Schrader came in hottest of all scorching take. He was, he, he accused sight and sound of um, cheating, or I think the way he put it here, I'm looking at it, put their thumb on the scale because he feels that, let me find the quote exactly. Jean Delmont will, from this time forward, be remembered not only as an important film in cinema history, but as a landmark of distorted, woke reappraisal. So mm. he really just came at it like, this is a good movie, but it should not be number one. The poll was a cheat, and putting it number one puts a target on the movie as like woke culture, which mm. I just think, like, I'm a Schrader fan. I've spoken to him before. Interesting guy. He's done some great stuff with cinema. 
taxi driver is on the list. It's on like almost so many people's ballots, not everyone. It's an important movie. Uh, not to mention the way he's circled around that character and concept in the decades since. But man, this is such a bad take, like to me. And it's, it's, it's toxic and dangerous because, first of all, anybody who uses woke in that sort of way is kind of on my list of like, come on. Like, woke just means sensitive to people who are different than you, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it doesn't, it's not a bad thing. Like, using it as a bad thing is a bad thing. But second of all, forgetting that, claiming they cheated to try, it, it's like, dude, what happened was more people voted. A lot more people voted. A lot more people who are women and from other countries and people mm-hmm. of color. And so, yeah. The old guard. See, the funny thing is, did you guys see Ty West's list, which was the the biggest meme of memes, kind of? It was the most basic. Like, he he literally, he just listed, I mean, I joke, it's kind of like, it would be a lot. My list is probably pretty similar. It's like, white guy born in 1981, like, that's your list. Like, it's like, it's a lot of movies from the 70s and earlier made by white men, like, about white men. Like, and that's great. That's most of cinema's history, right? A lot of good stuff in that category. But like when you expand the voting pool, like so far beyond that, yeah, it's going to change things. And that's the point. And like, I just think Schrader is, is like grumpy old man here, which I can relate to. And I love, but in a bad way, because to me, like what you said, Charles, and I want to hear Todd and Gigi like weigh in on this, but what you said is the exact perfect thing to take away from these lists. It's a good way to find out about movies you should see. That's the best thing about it. It's not a ranking. Frank Oz, in his little list, made an awesome point where he just said, like, okay, first of all, this is an impossible exercise. Let's just all agree. Like, nobody has seen every movie. Nobody can pick the the 10 best. But, you know, let's pick some that we think are important and want people to see. I mean, Ty West thinks everybody needs to see Chinatown. Everybody does. Chinatown didn't make the list, but you know, like, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I land on it. Like I thought that take and takes like it are, are really missing the point. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that this is an important perspective to underline, especially as things are different voices, different stories are going to be circling around because there haven't been the same opportunities. And this is something that We all know and we need to actively, proactively acknowledge and create space for more in different stories or acknowledging stories that haven't been given the time or space historically. I mean, we were just talking before the podcast how there are so many father-son relationship movies, but where are the mother-daughter relationship movies? Like 13 was maybe one of the first ones that really sort of like went there. Lady Bird. Eternal Daughter, which is out soon, if not out now. Oh, nice. Tilda Swinton plays both the daughter and the mother. Oh my gosh, that sounds tumultuous and actually a perfect (laughs) perfect pairing. That's a genius Um, concept. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It had to be Tilda Swinton too, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I've been turned off, honestly, from a lot of these lists in the past because they haven't felt like they speak to me. And so, you know, but I also turn to them. Like I watched The Third Man for the first time. Sorry for not being a great filmmaker person, uh, having not seen it. And I was like, oh, this is delightful. Also, so refreshing, spoiler alert, that he doesn't get the girl in the end. Like, I love this. It's also My favorite final shot in movie history. 
Oh, the, oh, the, the, the last so shot of that movie is my favorite thing ever. <laughs> that so movie is so beautiful. Like, such, a good, beautiful. such a good ending. One of the things that's interesting about the list is that it's also marking a change in, I think, what the list is trying to do in that as it tries to make itself more relevant to actually all of cinema, Gene Delmain is a particularly, like, again, haven't seen it, just read the summary and, and looked at some clips. We'll carve out time to read it soon so I can talk about it in more detail. But it is not a traditionally, like, they also could have gone for, like, do the right thing, right? Like, which is a very traditionally entertaining movie, but also a great movie. And what's crazy to me about the New York Times article is like, there was not a single black American filmmaker on the top 100 on the 2012 list. So Spike didn't make the 2012 list at all, which is crazy because between Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X, which Malcolm X is still not even on the list, like there's two strong arguments. And so like, there are, are ways in which they could have gone for diversity, but still gone for things that are like very, like if Malcolm X is on TV on a Saturday, you're going to watch it. Like it's an amazingly addictive movie. And what's right. interesting to me about like Gene Domain is is a step further into cinema that is not necessarily as interested in conventional Entry. entertainment formats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. The, the the hundred list we got, the ballots when you looked at them again, Ty West like either didn't understand the assignment or understood it perfectly, however you want to look at it. But most of those 10 lists included at least three movies that are of the like, you know what I saw a lot of is like Meshes of the Afternoon. Have you guys seen that one? Or um, Last Year at Marion Bad. Like some of the things you see in film school or a lot of Bunuel, like a lot of stuff that is on the kind of less, even there's mainstream classics, there's kind of like slightly outside the mainstream classics. And then there's these like curveball classics that are established as very filmy. And so to a lot of the population, it's like, this is so pretentious or this is so that like, where's the Godfather? And it's like, Ty West's like, I got the Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it seems like, like that. Like, I think, have you guys ever noticed when you talk to people who are different than you, not just in how they look or where they come from, but just like, you know, in the world, well, everyone's different, but, and they talk about their favorite movies. Sometimes you're just like, whoa, like, that's not what I expected. Like if I, this group, probably we've got a very similar list. I'm sure Charles, <laughs> extremely similar, <laughs> list. but like you go outside a certain range and you'll talk to people and you'll be like, oh, I guess they just have never seen, like, I had a professor who's extremely intelligent guy. Like, and, and he was just like, Never really saw like Die Hard was his favorite movie. Ever. Like it was just like he never really saw Citizen Kane. He didn't care about anything from before 1970 or whatever. Like so, I just think you talk to different people from different places in the world. Like we're in a bubble. We're all in bubbles. But like that, like like when you expand to 1,600 people of varying backgrounds, like you really are. Like I don't think they cheated. That's what I'm trying to yeah. say. Like I really do think it's possible to get a very, very, very different list when you start asking very different people. Well, and I think what like you can't really discount the sort of we now, as opposed to back in even 2010, where you would you would go buy like a Blu-ray on on Amazon or whatever it was, or you'd go to the local video store or whatever. Now for three ninety nine, you can watch pretty much any movie. Um, yes. Just, just check it over to Amazon and, and watch whatever. And then also we have, 
Oh yeah, that's true. That's very true. But um, what I I I have a sneaking suspicion Batgirl might not have made this list. But um, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I mean, and then you know, I've noticed. I get right. right, right, (laughs) It's too woke. Yeah, they the the other thing too is I've noticed Letterboxd like lists and things have have sort of influenced a lot of uh, movie watching culture. So like you know, it's funny. I've kind of noticed as I've come up through through the years, like there's kind of like every five years, there's like a, a three or four like super under the radar artsy films from a long time ago that kind of rise to the top for some reason out of nowhere. And, and, and then, you know, you hear about them for a while uh, and then they kind of go back down or whatever you like that. But I think letterbox has kind of kept a lot of those films kind of at the same level. So like, I don't know. I've, I've, I've noticed a lot more of my friends like, uh, and younger younger people that I, I work with kind of like being more informed about older films than I'm I used to which is cool obviously and and a really great thing but I think that's also a part of like I know in this you know I just I, I feel like people are more like apt now to jump on Ty West for having basic movie taste you know mm-hmm. because they've seen more I think you know it's more memeable now because they're like what you haven't your favorite movie isn't you know Tokyo Story what's wrong with you you know that kind of thing right <laughs> Tokyo story. Well, it's also interesting from Ty West because Ty West is notorious for his horror. His horror films have a deep knowledge of cinema history. Like right. his filmmaking is not a filmmaking that doesn't deeply reflect a really wide knowledge. So it's sort of an interesting thing for like I don't know. I think it's kind of bold to be basic in that. Like, all right, here's a like you know I clearly have seen all of it because his films reflect that. I and yeah, like, I like. Well, and I, I like I I really firmly believe like if you ask someone what their favorite movies are, they should answer you truthfully. Don't t- don't throw in a bunch of you know other shit just to seem cool. That's not yeah. that's not cool. Like if your if your favorite movie are those ten movies, then say it. That's fine. Like at least yeah. you know you don't have some bullshit up there. Like those are all ten pretty good movies. You know, like yeah, so, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I like his list. Like, I like his approach. I like everybody's approach because there's no wrong way to do this. Um, But I do kind of agree with Todd. Like, I joked on Twitter. I think I was like, you got to pick three underground classics and one, like, total piece of crap that just gets people guessing. It's like, like, what if you put, like, you know, ants or something that you're just like, it's a classic, man. It's a classic. Mumblecore. Like, I'm on every one of my top ten lists. Yeah. But, like, I saw somebody put Groundhog Day, which I think is basically as good a movie as you're going to get. Yeah. You know, and I was just like, I wouldn't have even remembered it. Like to think, right. I love it. I love it. But it wouldn't have like I would have thought like, okay, all the great movies. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I would love that somebody was like, because it was like, that's right. Groundhog Day is like one of the great movies I've seen. I don't think like execution wise, like it. So I just think there's more. Everybody has like twenty top tens, maybe thirty, like, right? So, depending on the day that rotates, like. I love the exercise if it's done in the spirit of we're not anointing. We are sharing all the great things that we've seen and inspired us so we can help enrich everybody else's movie palette, you know? Right. Well, Some this of these movies the whole... will inspire you, I think, to make movies differently, I think. The whole, like, I, I mean, even the title of the poll, Sight and Sound, sounds pretentious and so i think people are going in with like well it has to be the best marriage of craft and and auteurness and blah 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 but like 
what about just pure entertainment? Like where, why aren't we celebrating that? Like what is the movie that families come back to and watch year after year? Like for mine, it's a Christmas story and elf. Mm. Like it's the holidays. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But like, why, no aren't, why aren't we celebrating on this list, the groundhog days and the diehards that are also have married craft. It's just maybe because they, because they're like action thriller or, comedy they don't get to live in the sight and sound you know world of sipping fancy drinks and smoking cigars some people did which like i remember i saw someone through like a lubich movie and i was like oh i'm so glad someone put one of those on because those are perfect and then someone threw on uh like i'm trying to think of other examples but there were so many things where i would see it and i was like oh i love that somebody did that yeah. i wouldn't have remembered or like was a- i'm just glad there was a recent interview that really kind of blew my mind with Jordan Peele where he was asked what his biggest influences were. And I was like, you know, I was like, Oh, here we go. We're going to get some cool, <laughs> some cool shit to pull from. And he's like, yeah, pretty much it was like Hitchcock and like Spielberg. And, <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> okay. I mean, John no. Carpenter must've been on there. Yeah. Yeah. John Carpenter. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's just funny because well, things are, things are classics for a reason. Right. I mean, it's, John Carpenter's list was great too. It was just like all Howard Hawks. Like he went totally old school. It's like John Ford, Howard Hawks, like all the way down. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's awesome. Like that tells me so much about Carpenter. And like, I love those movies too. Like, I, I think that there's an omnivorous approach to this as opposed to a zero sum game approach. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I also think we're in this interesting time where I remember I remember there was a time in my life where I could identify at a party who was stylish and who wasn't stylish. And then mm. at some points, everything became stylish. Like you'd be at a party and you'd be like, <laughs> those are bootcut jeans and they're stylish. And those are tapered jeans. And like everything is now when worn with the decision, it's, it's stylish. And so like our ability to have like a juvenile reaction of like, well, that's too popular. And I'm not going to lie. I'm not gonna like Spielberg. Cause too many people like Spielberg. Like it's like, well, Spielberg is no longer dominant. He's not guaranteed great box office on anything he does. And everybody can recognize he's done some amazing things and he's done some uneven things. And like, it's, it's all like omnivorous. I mean, it goes back to that thing. I'm just a slut for movies. Like, like we <laughs> just love all of the movies and that can include both Gene Domain and do the right thing and Malcolm X and a Christmas story. And like, we can just like the good ones. And yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Todd where he was saying before, like there's this like, I think it is a juvenile thing. I think it's like a teenage thing to be like, I'm not going to like this thing that's popular. And then eventually mm-hmm. you grow up and you're like, I'm just going to like <laughs> shit that's cool. And I'm not going to give a shit. Like, like literally, if you're not going to give a shit if other people like it or not, that means you don't care if one other person likes it, like me and Blow, where no one else likes it. Or <laughs> if like a hundred million other people like it, like me and Nope, which like everybody loves and I loved. And it's like, I'm just not going to give a shit if other people like it. Legitimately. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to try and love the shit I love. And I think that's, there's many things that make maturity, but like, that's one of them. It's like, just love cool shit. Oh, I want that t-shirt. That's good. I was going to say that goes on the t-shirt as well. <laughs> love for <laughs> movies, love cool shit. Love cool shit. <laughs> All right. Moving on from there, in terms of loving movies, we have three movies this season that are about filmmakers, love for movies. I've not seen any of them, so I'm going to be mostly quiet, but it's Sam Mendes. Uh, Chazelle and obviously the Fableman from Spielberg. I haven't seen any, but I will say based on the trailers, Hollywood Babylon, the dominant, the Chazelle one looks like the most fun, like Brad Pitt playing 
uh, actor, but it seems like a really good time. And Margot Robbie seems to be kicking ass. And I don't know that it seems like a really good time. George, you think they're all going to flop, right? So here's, yeah, I want to talk about this because I think that part of, well, I think it's relevant because we are an audience and a community of filmmakers. And we've just been talking about a list of movies and cinemas do or think about or are inspired by. And these guys are all very established at various levels of their careers, but very established and got major money to make movies that are about movies. And there are, there's a rich history of making movies about movies. The industry loves, it's like, write what you know, and the industry celebrates them often. And there's often this joke from the outside that it's like this kind of annoying thing that Hollywood thinks what it does is so important and great. But these are all very different. And I think that they will all struggle, maybe not critically, but in terms of audiences. And I think the main reason is, well, I think one of the reasons is it's all well and good from the inside of great success to talk about the magic of cinema. It can be hard because so Fablemans is the, is the one to kind of think about, but it's a fairy tale that it's like a fairy tale that comes true. Like he, he, mm-hmm. he wants to be the filmmaker. He grows up with the camera in his hand and, and Hey, he became Steven Spielberg. There's like 300,000 who don't, yeah. <laughs> he's the one, you know? So like, or do at varying hit various tiers, but like, don't become movie God. And I think that that is a turnoff. And I think that, that it's out of touch, dare I say. And it's hard to imagine how he could be. On the other hand, it's fascinating that as a thought experiment to give someone a ton of movie money to make a movie about their life. And no one's really going to say no to anything. So you get like this completely clean window into someone's own brain of the reflection on their own life and experience. Like almost like for therapeutically, we should all be given like $150 million to make a movie about our childhood mm-hmm. with no notes. Like, like <laughs> in that movie, I was just like, damn, I learned a lot about this guy and not the things he wanted me to learn. Like, I don't think, like, I think I learned some things that maybe just like weird, like weird emphasis on certain things, but. That aside, it is to me, you know, I love a movie like Inside Lewin Davis or Ed Wood or Boogie Nights or movies that are about different aspects, like kind of like fringes or struggles or failures or missteps, because that's grounded in reality, I think. And not all those were success, but I think that there is something out of touch about the approach that is cinema is the all healing tool of the universe. It makes everything better. It makes us all happy. Like Sunset Boulevard to me is a more honest depiction. And Billy Wilder was famously like in trouble and criticized by the industry for daring to bite the hand that feeds him by making a movie that was so dark about Hollywood. But it's like, you're never going to get that from Spielberg, obviously. But like, I, I just think that there is something about this. I think it came out of the pandemic. I think there was a little bit of a, we need movies. We really mm-hmm. need them, you know, and we just talked about being a slut for movies and I do love movies. <laughs> like I'm not saying, but like, I think that there's something about this trend um, that is a little out of touch. And I think that it's going to drive. I think that it's not, 
It's not most people's realities. Like even Babylon or, or any of them, they're about people who are like living high on the hog of the movie world. Like there's yeah. so few people who do that or ever experience that, you know? So, you know, it's, I, I think that there's, I, th- I think there's more eye rolling maybe than there is, you know, otherwise. I also think in general we are, well, I'll, I'll open it up to you guys. Like, do you all have like a strong reaction to this trend? Do, do these things turn you off? Do you want to see these movies? Will you see these movies? Like, I mean, Empire Light is a little on the side. It's about a theater, but it's still like the healing power of cinema, you know? I I definitely skew towards the eye roll reaction, especially with Babylon. Like I I feel like I've seen Brad Pitt in iterations of this role, and there's nothing that really compels me to it. I loved La La Land. Like I came to New York and or I came to LA and was like making my career into being a filmmaker, like blasting those songs and like thinking I was Emma Stone. So there's definitely like something that felt original about that. But like the glamorous old days of Hollywood, I'm kind of bored by that. I did really enjoy The Fablemans, which I saw in theaters uh, last weekend. And I think I could have easily been eye rolling at it if it wasn't Spielberg, because he engineers moments that make me feel things. and, And I was able to connect with that. And it's very refreshing in this time of you know one or shots that are just sort of like capturing everything like it was really refreshing to see a filmmaker making a film and and making me feel the things that he intended me to feel I also gotta say as a child of divorce I saw a very similar I liked that that was the backbone and the exploration of the story it was very vulnerable and and in showing this imperfection that was like refreshing to me. And I was like, oh yeah, my dad's the engineer and my mom's the artist as well. Like that, I felt seen there. So I was like, okay, this could have been like an annoying glory story. And I liked that the approach was, and I think this goes, has to give, we have to give some credit to like Tony Kushner's ability to create these character moments where we're like following this boys, this kid come coming up and learning from different people. I, I was here for that because that's what it felt like to me and it felt like the filmmaking was less of a less of the overall story like we never got to even see spoiler like where he goes and how his career gets started we it ends in a delightful moment that that taps into that and hints at that but really it's like and I'd love to see (laughs) Fablemans too to like because I'm like (laughs) let's see uh you know what that was like when he the myth of Spielberg. But um, but I, I agree with you about the sort of, if the story is we find humanity in the movies, like we'll watch the Nicole Kidman spot again and like we get it. Um, I feel like The Fablemans is a little bit outside of that. It's not a perfect film for me, but I did enjoy it. Man, I got to tell you, Babylon for me, ever since it, I first saw like, the the trailer for it, the teaser for it, whatever. I was just like, I can't think of anything that I'm less interested in watching. <laughs> I I could not care less about that movie. And it's three hours long. Like to me, that's like that that that's taking it up a notch in the the self-importance of it's rude. I'm just like, <laughs> I don't, I don't like, I don't need to watch people partying for three hours and having a great life when like like this I is not go the time. It's irresponsible. Like I <laughs> 
like I, I, I people just don't relate to that right now. And and for me, like something like Fablemans is kind of different because it's a it's a personal story and it is Spielberg, and so that that helps it in that regard. But like, I don't know, it it ebbs and flows for me. It just depends on sort of where I'm at. Uh, personally financially emotionally <laughs> whether or not i'm into I this mean, kind of thing but like you see avatar it's uh, gonna be close to three hours right oh, yeah really? i'll see i'll see i'll see avatar but i'll be i'll be grumpy about it being three hours long for sure um but I'll, are you I'm, seeing it opening I, weekend definitely not definitely not okay. but i'll see it i'll see it just because it's like it, I, it just seems like it's like from a visual effects perspective it's going to be like mind-blowingly beautiful but like, I don't know. Sometimes I go through like little phases where I'll like listen to podcasts of like celebrities <laughs> talking and like, you know, like I'll listen to the Smartless podcast, which is like Will Arnett and Jason Bateman and um, Sean Hayes. And they'll be like talking about some fancy dinner they went to. And then they went and played golf with, you know, Sean Penn was there. And oh, Sean mm. said this funny joke. I was like, I don't fuck it. I don't want to hear this. I don't well, care I about your. Why am I spending my time doing this? You know? Yeah. And and yeah, like I said, it just kind of depends on it just depends on how, how I'm feeling. But for whatever reason, Babylon, I, I was not I've I've not been a big fan of of some of uh, Chazelle's work. Did like Whiplash a lot, but I do there's just something about it where I'm just like I feel like he's just a he's a little lost in the, the Hollywood sauce right now. And I I'd I'd like to you know, I don't know, a three hour long movie about old Hollywood. Like I, I remember uh what was that movie? Uh Mank. Did y'all like Mank? Ugh. Anybody see Mank? No. I Nobody saw Mank, you know. I, 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 saw, I, I saw it. I'm shaking my head at the other part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one, no one liked Mank, and I'm just, you know, it's like it's kind of same era. It's less personal story. It's just I don't know what's going on in the in the movie, but yeah, every they've just you know, you, there's it, just been one image of Margot Robbie like laying, with, like she's being carried across a crowd, and that's the only image they put out about anything. And then there's the trailer, which features the same scene, like. I'm just like, what is this movie? Who cares? Anyway. Yeah. I mean, so I have like cinema that reflects on itself is one of those things that like community should have killed. Like if you've seen the community episode about the director making a film about the making of a film, mm-hmm. it like so thoroughly skewers the, the genre of self-reflective film with such glee that like any film that reflects back on filmmaking after that needs to jump the hurdle that community has set. In terms of, I, I need to thoroughly transcend all of these cliches in order, because otherwise I'm just like walking into the trap of Dan Harmon having like done a criticism on me 15 years before I made the film. <laughs> on the flip side, we can't rule it out entirely because there are amazing films about cinema. I mean, Eight and a Half is the classic of the genre. But if you haven't seen Eight and a Half, eight and, eight and, half, half and all that jazz were on so many ballots. And those, oh are, the, those are the things that get parodied the most. That's the parody. Also, Source. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is post Dan Harmon, yes. is still a very good movie. And yes. so, like, we can't rule it out as a subject, but I think it, that there's a high fucking bar. Like, yeah. when you think about directing, like, we think about directing as all of these things. We think about directing as, like, the act of being on set and sculpting a performance and deciding where the camera is. But, like, your fundamental first decision as a director is subject to choice, right? Like, at the right. beginning of everything else, when you're at the level these three are, you are choosing a subject's to direct your energy towards and like you better have something goddamn good to say if you're going to reflect totally. back on cinema itself and and that is like a very high bar um not that you should never do it but oof. I, I totally agree with you charles especially because you know 
if you're drawing from your own experience and you're Spielberg, like, of course, you're going to have like a way more interesting story to tell than like some rando mediocre filmmaker. No offense. Like ever, everyone's great. I'm glad we're making things. But like, what is the angle that is interesting and compelling and different? Like, I love American movie. I just saw it recently. And like, oh. it's a doc. But like, that is that's so a film good. about filmmaking. That it's is as good as it gets, man. As that good as it gets, exactly. And so, yeah. like, what are you going to bring to the table that's different? And frankly, I feel like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has scratched the itch that I think Babylon is trying to like fit into. Sure. But I'm like, okay, so yeah. you're going to do it better than Quentin Tarantino, and you cast Brad Pitt as well, like, and Marco Robbie. Yeah, exactly. That's what's confused. That's I think I'm like I think I've seen an echo of this before. Why am I watching this trailer again? It's it is very exactly. hard because I think like hearing you guys talk about it, like like our our past segment reveal, like a lot of audiences, like we get it. We we do love cinema, sirs. Like we love it. Like you don't need like we we already love it. Like you don't you need to do more than just tell us that it's lovable. <laughs> you need to do a little more because like tell us something like American movie. Like what's it like when you're just banging your head against a brick wall? Or like I mean I'm speaking for myself. Like that for me it 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 tells me something. It's different. It's human. Like it, it, to your point about Fableman's like look Steven Spielberg whether he's making a good movie on the whole, on balance, or bad, on balance, whoever judged. The guy has some kind of savantness that in Fableman's, even in scenes that are should be boring and drag, he just does stuff with the camera that's like, I don't know what the fuck, he, how he does it. It's got some magic sauce on it. Like, mm-hmm. he just knows how to keep moving your eye to the right place, keep you thinking, keep you feeling visually, like, I, I don't know. And so for that reason alone, it's kind of fascinating because it's like, but you can take a topic that like divorce and wanting to be a filmmaker, like maybe in, in at his age, he was in a minority of people who were experiencing those things, like always using a camera, having parents go through divorce. People our age or a lot more of us people today. My God, like, <laughs> like, so it's not unique, it's not a unique story anymore, Yeah, but he still has got the goods. You know, mm-hmm. I think I that mean, nobody can you know, like Spielberg. Like it is, yeah. it is. I mean, maybe Max office, but like you know, it is of like, yeah, blocking, staging. It's and that can enliven something that is not necessarily as interesting. I want to go back to runtime a second. We're mocking three-hour movies, and I want to point out that I saw Glass Onion in the theater last week, and it's two and a half, and I thought it was too short. I was mm-hmm. literally bummed. I was like, motherfucker, I could have watched that longer. <laughs> so I don't think that like there are movies that deserve their three hours. But when I see that three-hour runtime on an IMDb or in an Alamo uh, web app, I'm like, ooh, this is – you better be fucking sure. Yeah. You better be real fucking sure. That you <laughs> when have- I agreed, I don't know how long Fableman's was, but at one point I turned to my friend and I was like, I feel like I've been watching this movie for a very <laughs> long time. And I'm not bored. I just feel like I've been living with these people for a long time. And there are sometimes I agree, like I, a lot of people told me once upon a time in Hollywood dragged for them. For me, I could have done six hours, yeah. but <laughs> like, uh, yeah. I was just happy hanging out in the car. 
listening to the radio, driving yeah. around LA. Like, <laughs> yeah, there are those movies where it's just like it has that quality of like I, I just I could just I could pull up a little blanket and just sit in the theater all day and just have a nice little day watching this movie. But yeah, there's there's for me, yeah, I'm I'm with Charles. Like, you better just don't waste my time. Like, you better be sure that it's worth this this runtime. And there are definitely some movies nowadays. That, yeah, when we have our phones and well, anything and, else, and it's preferable. To be glass onion, and even in two and a half hours, leave me being like, "That's it. That's all I get. I want more." Well, and like a little that bit is, more. yeah, I would love. Mm. And like, if you can get it, and it, I can't remember the last time I saw a three-hour movie, and I was like, I could have done more of that. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a three-hour movie and thought I could have done more of that. Wasn't Once Upon a Time in Hollywood three hours? Did it, it must three? Been. Maybe not. I thought it was two and a half. Maybe about yeah, three. Maybe. We'll look it up. I, for me, once you're in two and a half range, it's like that's three <laughs> because <laughs> because it's so long. But you're right. If Babylon is the is Babylon 40. really three three hours? Yep, three hours and eight minutes. That's that's like, I mean, three and eight. <laughs> those last eight minutes are going to kill people. I'm right. impressed that um, our managing editor Joe Light was was messaging me <clears throat> yesterday because she was watching it. She was like, "This movie is long," but like I was thinking about like. Wow, if it's really three hours, I'm kind of curious what they do for three hours. Right. Like, how did he get them to say okay to three hours, first of all? <laughs> Wait, let's do a little plug for the app RunP again, which is an <laughs> app that tells you when it'll buzz, when you should go to the bathroom about halfway through the movie, tell you what you missed, and then you can come right back in because some of us don't have bladders that can last that long. Yep. What didn't, didn't Tarantino do? Wasn't what movie was there an in intermission? Was it was that Hollywood? Yeah. Or what, which movie? Uh, was uh, Hateful, Eight. No. Hateful Eight. That's Hateful right. Eight. See, I, I, I respected the hell out of that. I was like, like the chitty chitty bang bang still <laughs> image. Yeah, I was like, I was like, you know yeah. what? I do need to go to the bathroom. Thank you, Tarantino. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love right, that whole thing of doing that. Anyway, sorry. Um, the well, they, yeah, they used anyway. We won't go nerdy on why they used to have to do it with the projectors and shit. You didn't have to do it on a play. They did it for human bladders. Moving on to our <laughs> next subject, which doesn't have human bladders: artificial intelligence. Which motherfuck again, again this week drops hey, like. I, I want. I want to uh, say though, this week wasn't my my request. This time, George wanted to to, to complain about AI. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm assuming we're going to talk about chat G, GPT. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> That's that was part of what inspired it. Like, look, we've been talking about this and following it on this podcast. We've been writing about it on the No Film School website. But like, if you aren't watching what's happening, it's happening so fast. Like we're we're coming close to Judgment Day. They're going to be self-aware. Like, th- like. <laughs> Three weeks ago, I was just looking at Mid Journey and I was impressed. And like, I was like, wow, these, some of the like hands don't look great, but like, I was like, these are beautiful. Like, there's good stuff happening here. Then Todd talked to us about like that nerf thing, which is just crazy. And Todd, you still need to write about that for mm. us. I really want to do. And that created a whole new idea of what this could be. Well, this last week, it looks like it can write and it looks like it can write. In not the way, remember the the viral thing where the guy said, I asked a bot to write Olive Garden commercials and this is what I got. And it was a human wrote it and it was absolutely hilarious. And that sort of account or person that became like a meme of its own on Twitter where people would be like, I asked a bot to write blah, blah, blah. And then it was, well, now it's here. Like this thing, I, oh, what's it called again? Chat GPT. 
Yeah. So someone texted me this and was like, I asked it to write a screenplay. And I was like, it wasn't great. But I was like reading it. I was like, damn. Like, and, and there's other ones too. Like we've been, I've looked at a few and tested them just because I'm curious. And they have these formulas. They spit out, like they can spit out a movie plot. They can spit out a, and what they do is they uh, scan the internet, just like the image thing. They, they read stuff, they internalize it, and then they create an original like piece of text that's similar to and based on. And sometimes they get bizarre things wrong or something like hilariously wrong. Like it just like puts facts together. The scary thing about that is that we are going to get a lot more misinformation and we're not going to necessarily know, like even more than we have by accident constantly. And people are going to run around and say, I read on blah, 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 which is reputable. This thing, like we can, like anyone can have these AIs write stuff and publish it. Like there's no... And and it'll be original and it might have little facts wrong. It might have big facts wrong and hmm. people will read it and people might think it's real. And the danger of that, not to mention just that, okay, so now you can get all your art done and your writing done by an AI with some prompts. And is that your work or is that the AIs? And like, where are we headed as artists or creators of content that this is, this is happening like in, and in its infancy, it's maybe not great, but it's, it's only going to get better. Right. Like, like if this infancy is like decent, then that's crazy. And last point I'll make before you guys jump in, I have it on pretty good authority that it was being talked about at one of the big Disney calls with Iger that he was like, this stuff's great. We should be using it more. And I think that that is not a surprise. And actually not a bad idea even from him, but the fact that you can absolutely, all, a lot of what the industry does is it tries to look at everything else and make a new similar thing. The old, uh, make the same thing only different. That's what the AI does. So that's where we are. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy and terrifying. So I'm like, I am of two minds about this. I saw a, a great take I saw on Mastodon the other day was that the a good way to think about AI is not that it's going to replace any smart people, but that it's going to be like having an army of dumb people. And so like the thing that you go back to of like, okay, well, if I want to have 50 articles just appear online, I used to have to pay someone $25 an article to write each of those anti-vax articles or whatever. Or like a, a really good example of whenever you're Googling like, one of my students the other day was like, what online transcription tool do you use? And I was like, oh, well, let's just Google it. And like the first seven articles of like, which transcription mm. tool should you use? were all written by transcription companies and they had to pay someone to do that. And they will all just have chat GPD, GPT, write like 17 articles on why they're the best transcription tool because you won't have to pay a content creator to do it. And so like that is going to be a real problem. But the interesting thing for me about all of this is like, I don't think screenwriters are going to get replaced anytime soon because someone still would have to read the output of GPD and be able to do revisions that like accommodate the star's notes and the director's like a screenwriter shop is so much more than just that one gibberishy draft. So I'm not worried about that, but I am worried about ladder climbing jobs in other fields. So one thing, and this conversation isn't finished yet, but I'm talking to someone online 
who was like, oh, yeah, I um, – because chat GPT can code. And that's the wild thing about it is it's not just like you can have a text conversation with it. It's not just you can ask mm-hmm. it a prompt like, tell me a story about someone asking for this camera. Like the crazy – one of the crazy ones was someone was like, hey, chat GPT, what's the resolution of this camera sensor? And chat GPT was like, I actually don't know that. I don't know everything. And then the next prompt was, tell me a story about someone going to a camera store and asking for the resolution of the sensor. And ChatGP did a story, and in the story, it got all the specs right. Someone was like, hey, camera vendor, what is the Sony NX20's camera uh, sensor size? And the camera store employee was like, it's actually 1.1 millimeters by, and you're like, oh, fuck. But it can code. And so someone I know is already like, oh, if you use coding to get rid of menial tasks on a production... You can now ask ChatGPD to code it for you. And menial tasks are the stuff we used to hire assistants for. And assistants used to be your ladder into the industry. If you had no stepladder in the industry, you would get an assistant at a job, and then you would spend a year of your life sinking fucking dailies, organizing media, doing all of this shit that with a little bit of coding you could get rid of. And the reason why we haven't gotten rid of it before is because so few people in post know how to code. But if coding now becomes going to ChatGPD and saying, write me a code that organizes this footage in this way. And then you can copy and paste yeah. that code into resolve resolve support scripting. Maya supports scripting all like their scripting and all of the big software. Well, motherfuck, that's the step of like my biggest terror of AI is not the top end jobs. My biggest terror is in order mm. to get one of those top end jobs, you have to do shit work for five years to eat. And it's like, all right, well, if there's no way to eat doing that shit work. Are you just going to leave the industry and go to something else? And that's the thing yeah. that freaks me out about this is you're like, like, this is the first time I'm like, oh, for five years now, I've been saying AI is going to cut ladder climbing jobs. And this is the first one where I'm like, oh, like this week, it's going to cut ladder paying jobs. There are people who in the next couple of weeks will not hire an assistant for something because they can now code it because of this. Now, they also I mean, could have learned how editor, to code five years ago. Um, if you're an editor, like I am. Post, post is 60% have- of the industry. Yeah, you have to review whatever has been written, no matter yeah. what. But what if you don't have to pay someone to write it? Like, that changes everything. Like, and, and it's terrifying. I agree. Like, it, in terms of the implications for, like, disparity and opportunity. And uh, you make a good point, though. I do feel like, even though I was kind of sounding the alarms and, like, the end of the world is coming, I do really think it is still a hammer and we are still wielding a tool. Like, it is a tool. And it can be used in an incredibly interesting, dynamic, useful way. It's like the typewriter didn't replace, didn't ruin writing. You know, computers didn't ruin everything. Like it's just advances and changes. Like I, I, I do think AI is a tool and some people use it really well. And some people use it for evil, just like always. Like, so I, I don't think it's the end of the world, but it is insane mm-hmm. how much it's going to change things. I think that the, shift of the skill set like instead of this you know if if the first iteration of like access to information is the tool of search i think the next iteration that an ai can't do is curation so you know whether it's like searching for these articles about what's the best transcription i think now like the the next value is like can we start to see like a curated list from somebody who we trust who has vetted these things because otherwise we're getting these like crap articles written by an AI that are just fine. But like, what about the hot take? And I wonder if that also applies to editing. So the new assistant 
instead of doing the menial task of syncing, which I do think is a way to become familiar with the footage and is important right now. Like, what if they're now just focused on performances? And is it is it a tool that's taking out a step, giving people the ability to be uh, crafting like first cuts or assemblies at a faster rate? And like, will we ultimately be getting more output or a better product at the end? Because we're taking. I'm sorry, I keep jumping in no, and talking, but I have more. I, I, there's something I got to say about this because my kind of entry level to the world of the internet work out of film was SEO, which is search engine optimization, and I, I know a lot about it, and I've done a lot of work within it, and it's all about that ranking system on Google. It's all about like how you get posts and things to surface in the top, and there's like a, it's constantly changing. Google's rank brain is extremely complex and only Google knows what it's doing. So it's like this game. And the thing about these posts, I thought the exact same thing Charles is talking about, and you're talking about Gigi. If what will hopefully happen is rank brain will start to identify patterns of those bot posts because where I worked initially was there, it was kind of like content farm where it was like, here's how we write SEO. Every single thing we do, it's got to be exactly like this, blah, blah, blah. You're a machine, you do it. And you did it according to those specs and the posts would rank. And then the specs change and you would alter them. But if you can have a machine do that, you would, you wouldn't pay me at entry level, right? So the interesting thing though will be, I hope that Google starts to recognize those things and be like, uh, we're going to drop this one because we can recognize certain bot patterns. I don't know how, and maybe it's not possible. But similarly, if we're going to go into the filmmaking side of it, I think that there are things that there may be ways that the sorting process or the hiring process identifies that like the bots are limited and we don't like bot work. Like we might identify certain things about it and still need a human to step in at a certain point to fix it or improve upon it or prompt it. Like maybe writing becomes more about prompting and then sorting what you get from the prompter. Um, but I, I can't really tell what the future of this is. I just know from my sliver of experience that there is an easily replaceable position. Um, I just wonder if the industry will adapt the way it has in the past to being like, you know, it used to be keyword stuffing. Like if you're trying to rank for, for transcriptions, like Charles says, you can't, you're supposed to say it a hundred times in your post, but then rank brain was like, if you say it more than three times, we know that you're trying to gain the system. So I, I don't know what's going to happen though, obviously. But I, but on the flip side, I think AI is great at curation. I mean, TikTok is successful because of AI curation, right? Like that's how they did it. With the, with, for both the SEO element and the TikTok element, there is one thing and that is I think there's like a quality score, AKA time spent. So the curation is informed also by human interaction with it. So it's learning from that. So it's optimizing towards the amount of time spent, which I think is such a good point. I want to go to Todd, Todd in a second, but such a good point because we learned a lot. We were like, like, first of all, when you read the stuff, the AI is right. You're not, you're probably not going to spend a lot of time. It's not super engaging. They can change that though, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Over time, they'll make it more engaging. But also that time spent thing is huge, huge, huge. So like good writing that connects is obviously going to win. But yeah, go ahead, Todd. Well, I was just going to say, like, I think, I think, uh, A, I definitely agree with Charles. I think initially it's just going to, all all the entry level stuff is just going to start 
dissipating. Like it's, it's, it's just, I, that's my personal view on it. I think there's a lot of things that, um, I don't know. It, it's, there's a reason why the money people are salivating over it. There's a, there's a very good reason why. And the thing that I, I think is just not really talked about enough is, is the learning side of this. It's, it's learning. Yes. It's going mm-hmm. to get better. And yes, it is very good at curating. T- TikTok has a magical ability to figure out what is going to make me sit and stare at my phone for way too freaking long. And so that's, to me, that's the thing is like, it's, it's learning. So, uh, I, I mean, w- you can really take it in a hundred different ways, but the thing that freaks me out is like, how far are we from basically our, 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 uh, habits online and what we do and don't read being logged by some sort of algorithm. And then not only are we getting AI generated blog posts, but we're getting AI generated blog posts that talks in a way that it thinks we like. You know, and, yes. and that's, yeah. that's coming like that. There's no way that that's not coming. And so that's the thing is like, we're, we're moving into a thing where we're removing, like, it's a big leap forward, in my opinion, into anti-intellectualism. It's a big, it's taking the human beauty out of what we consume and giving us this big giant hive mind. And no mm-hmm. one, I, I feel like I'm, I got a foil hat on, but it's like, no one is really as worried about it as I think they should be. Because it again, the money people are salivating. They know it's going to save them money. They can and and when you when you say um, like like the 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 culling and the curating and and it's not good at that yet. All you got to do is alter that code a little bit. Just change that that yeah. engine. Train it differently. Throw a few I extra like zeros and ones in there. Mm-hmm. I keep agreeing with everyone, but I want to agree with that and put a foil hat on and say. As well, it's not even just money people are salivating. Like we, have you guys seen that Bo Burnham clip where he talks about how the thing that's being colonized now is our time. Mm. It's a terrifying reality that he presents. That's just like, all they want is your time and they're getting it. The longer you look at something, they're learning about you. They being like the tool, the app, the whatever, the algo. And that's why engagement and minutes spent is so important. Like it's time. Mm -hmm. You just want your time. And like, it's, it's, it's going to become, like you said, the scary thing is not just people looking to save money and eliminate the cost of the low level employee, Todd. It's that you're going to use these tools to convince people of things in a way that they're comfortable hearing them because you're going to understand how they want to hear things, how they consume things, what they like to look at, what they like to read what cadence, like all those things, you're right. It, it can learn eventually. I don't think that's like tomorrow, but I think there's a, there's a future where like what Zuckerberg, what, what Facebook has done mm-hmm. and like what, like, like what these tools have done that's so toxic is like going to become more mass the, available. The, the train has terrifying. left the station, so to speak. Like we, it's, it's, it's on its way. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and it's not going to stop. It's learning. It's no one's going to randomly be like, okay, we sh- we shouldn't do the AI thing anymore. It's 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 ruining all of our stuff. Like that that moment's never going to come. And so yeah, we have to adapt to it and everything. But like my brain, I think I'm I'm constantly, as Charles has mentioned multiple times, I'm I, I have a lot of existential angst. Like I I'm worried about the future. I'm like, man, what is my what is my industry going to be? And I'll hear in a little while. And like we are, we are already dealing with a really strained creative job market. Like it's, it's already pretty hard to find work in a lot of markets and stuff. And yeah, I mean, there's just like, there's little things that it's just like, yeah, I mean, um, 
like a, like if you wanted to be get get into like editing blog posts like Grammarly came about and now Grammarly is editing blog posts and your emails you don't have to think too hard about your emails anymore cuz an AI will do it for you like i said it's just it just takes a lot of a lot of the the human element out of the what is already feels very cold and and hard to navigate like this internet based world we're living in you know so it's just it, i'm just not very for it but it's like one of those things where it's like well, shit. I mean, this is what I this is this is this is what it is. So I better I better make peace with it and start figuring out how to be better at it than other people or something. I don't know. Well, the- Charles, you I mean, look, I- there's a skepticism. Maybe I hope you have some. Do you have a counterpoint? When I was talking, I got the sense that you had something to throw out there I, that I might like be a curveball. Counterpoints. One is that. So first off, my first counterpoint is like there is a group of people who are freaked the fuck out about AI. Unfortunately, they're criminals, but like Sam Bankman Freed, his whole thing, his, his excuse he made to himself to steal billions of dollars was, I'm the only one who's worried enough about AI, and I'm going to steal billions of dollars to fight AI. And that is literally like, like that's not even like, like that was his whole thing. Is he's like, I will steal these billions of dollars and fight artificial intelligence, which is coming for us, which like, John you're Connor. a bad person, you stole billions of dollars and the arrogance to think you're the only one who could fight AI and you have to steal billions of dollars to do it, like, like, the morality of our behavior does affect its outcomes and like you're a bad person. Go to jail. <laughs> but there are people worried about it. But which but I also think that like we need I'm glad we're having this conversation. I'm glad you're worried about it. I'm worried about it. I have that same angst of like, you know, we all like three of the four of us have kids and we're all like, what the fuck jobs will these kids have mm-hmm. in the yeah. future? How will they eat? Will they just have to eat the sludge from Snowpiercer? Like, what <laughs> yeah. the fuck is gonna happen? Yep. I've, um, I've had that nightmare right. a couple times, yep. Oh my god. <laughs> uh and but I also think that, like, you know, the regulation gets a bad name, but, like, we have regulations that do things. Like, you can't, like, you know, you can't steal long distance. Like, there are technical regulations that we have enforced as businesses. Like, and, like, I I think it is time for regulation in the AI space because I think that there's some howling fantod end of the universe shit in AI that we should pay attention to. Mm-hmm. I'm going to also go out on a limb and defend a genre that I don't actually enjoy myself, but I think it's interesting to this conversation, which is reality television. There is a human, like reality television is an incredibly popular genre. I have good friends who are really into it. I will like, I don't stop conversations when two people are talking about a thing that just happened on Southern charm. Frankly, Southern charm sounds actually kind of entertaining and I would (laughs) be willing to, but like the thing they love about it is people Mm -hmm. is the messy dirtiness of feeling like they're getting a window into people's broken lives and like that is what fans of reality tv love so fucking much and i'm not going to judge that for a second that is a part of what we get from media and if there is a thing that i hang on to of like you know will ai in 15 years be able to make avatar 7 with james cameron's like downloaded Neuralink brain like in collaboration together or Mecca, James Cameron, like Mecca, James Cameron driven by AI will be directing avatar for the rest of human <laughs> I love civilization. It. And I would totally love a Mecca, James Cameron doll for Christmas. That's why Iger is for this. So he can fully monetize <laughs> and earn back all the <laughs> yeah, money yeah, from this yeah. new one. But like, I don't know that AI could do reality TV because yeah. part of the pleasure is the knowledge that it is real. Yeah. And part of the pleasure of uh, so much cinema, like, you know, I was reading some review of Babylon, which like one of the things the reviewer met said was like, this is a total fucking mess and the screenplay doesn't hold together. 
but there are moments that take your breath away. And I was thinking about what that means when I'm watching something in a movie and it takes my breath away. And there's a few moments in cinema. There's a moment, I can't even remember what it was, but I was watching um, She Got Game, the Spike Lee movie, in, in the theater with my buddy. And like, something happened and she got, no, she hate me. Sorry, not She Got Game. She hate me. And something happened and my buddy and I both simultaneously said, Spike! <laughs> and like, neither of us have met Spike Lee. I held a door for him once, but like, we just had this moment of like, motherfucker, you did that. Holy shit. Yeah. And like, like, that's a thing. Like, the thing that takes your breath away in a movie is a thing a person does where you're like, motherfucker. Whoa. Like, I've had that in a few Spike Lee movies. I've had that in a few. There's a few movies where I've seen where I'm like, yeah, yeah, motherfucker. Do that <laughs> shit. And uh, apparently there's a few moments like that in Babylon, which make me excited to see it. You know, there's a couple moments in Lady Bird where I remember being like, yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah. And like, that's the thing. Yeah, when she throws herself out of the car in Lady Bird, and you're like, fuck, yeah, okay, yeah, this is a movie. And so it's like that kind of stuff, I think, is one of the joys we, it's one of the joys I get from cinema. And I can't imagine, if I know it's a robot, it won't work. Like, yeah. I, I have to go into the <laughs> cinema knowing a person made it for me, to, for it to take my breath away. I don't know that AIR will ever take. I, I agree. I think we do need to look at towards regulation, especially seeing how a lot of this AI generated art is using artists work without their permission. And uh, there's there's copyright issues that we should explore. And I and I hope that big studios with IP that they hang their hat on and are obsessed with these days can can invest in that type of regulation because these open source AIs shouldn't be able to just take anything off the internet and use it. Um, I also totally agree with the sort of like rawness and humanness that like reality TV or like an, uh, we get from something that's not AI generated. I, I DM'd uh, Todd this like AI avatar thing that people are using for like human resource training and he's like, oh, no, they're coming for our corporate training. And it's like, <laughs> OK, like, I guess they're that actually I know people who will lose jobs because of this. But mm -hmm. um, seeing how like people are using Lensa for their profile pictures or posting their things, I'm like, these are like, no, you are not that hot. And like, I know that. And so it's missing the grittiness. And I think that like, hopefully that is something that we can protect and. Um, and I, I think that I actually am curious if if anyone knows, like, how can we support regulation on AI so we're protecting artists? Is there? Well, that, Is the Electronic I mean, I think Frontier just, Foundation on this? I don't know who's fighting for it right now. Well, and it's it's just weird because, like, man, it's just the sentence is crazy. But we are not. When you use AI, like for AI art, you're not stealing that artist's work. You're stealing like the vibe of it and the mm -hmm. sort of the texture. So it's like. Uh, I'm more offended if someone takes my vibe. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. That's 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 the bummer. But you, you can like vibe. type in a specific artist and it'll like sort of paint it with their brushstrokes, you know, but it's like you can't really like that sort of stuff isn't really protected to, to use someone's vibe. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. so weird. I want to bring up something that in this, there's another thing from writing, like there's a tool, there's Grammarly, but I was introduced when I was at that uh, kind of intro writings, SEO world to this tool called Hemingway, which is hilariously named. Have you guys ever no. heard of this thing? Mm -hmm. Hemingway tells you 
how, what reading level your writing is at, but not because it wants you, it's helping you to dumb it down. It wants you to get a lower score. It wants you to drop to like a fifth grade reading level or below. And it does this. It'll tell you things like the prompts will be like too many big words or complex sentence structure or, and the idea is that it's trying to get writing for the internet is supposed to be (laughs) simple, quick, anti-intellectualism, like exactly what you're talking Mm. about. And I took um, a power writing course online. This is a really uh, sad experience for me. But, it's a safe like, place learned, you can share. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a safe space. Nobody's listening. Um, I learned some serious, like, good things about writing on the internet, like valuable things about ad writing and copy, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that really upset me was the emphasis on don't try to sound smart, try to sound dumb. Hmm. Because, like, I just, the idea that we want everybody like it's not there's an angle of this that's like we're democratizing knowledge like there could be an angle of this that's like we want to make things more accessible we want more people to be able to to read and understand but there's another side of it which is like how do we get smarter how do we become how do we get more words in our like i like writing i like words like i like reading how do you get more words in your on your artist's palette or in your tool bag Will you read and you see more words and like you're forced to understand them in a context or like, and if we all make an effort to reach more people or to lower the bar just consistently, then what's going to happen? Like then, then the, then like, it just upsets me. It's like my, it's the intellectual version of the sludge on the bullet train thing, because it's like, that's where I see my kids is like, are they going to be like intellectually like the sludge in the bullet train where it's just like, well, we all talk and text and write and read in this very like high impact, low bar, like low processing speed. Like I, I hate that. I think that it's the same as like, I, I, it worries me. I think that though, that there's a good point about that Charles makes about what blows you away and what's human. And I kind of tied into the back, the, the past subjects of just like Spielberg's directing is an example of something that's like, like he has like a, a hand, he has like a touch, he has like a, and a lot of great artists do. And maybe this is the most optimistic thing I can say on the subject, but maybe it'll force us all to work harder at finding our touch or our artfulness because the heavy, the, 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 the tool piece, the building block piece is kind of like, well, something's going to take care of that. So how do you differentiate? Mm. How do you differentiate your, you from everything else? Well, you have to have fingerprints on it and they have to be worth something. And I, that's the most optimistic thing I can say about it is that that human touch or that blows you away that only a person can do is going to become even more important for all of us to develop. Um, but yeah. I don't know. All right. I, I think with that, we got to wrap it with the human touch. <laughs> uh, you can find me on the internet. Uh, I'm at Charles Hayne at barbecue.snoot on Mastodon, which is the only thing I'm going to plug anymore. I'm at Lost in Graceland on all the things, including Mastodon.barbecue.snoot. Did I say that right? Uh, you're adjacent. You're in the neighborhood. <laughs> See what C above C Charles is as the AI generated transcript 
you control F mm. and find it. <laughs> uh, I'm Todd Blankenship. You can find me at Am I a Filmmaker on Instagram and YouTube. I'm a George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. And you can find me at Am I an AI bot <laughs> generating content? George. <laughs> I've always had this dream for a long time, like many years, guys, that one day I would be able to create, there would be an algorithm that could just generate based on all the things I've texted and emailed and written exactly what I would think about anything. So people could continue to talk to me after I'm dead. I don't know why that's always fascinated me. I'm a hundred percent sure that's that that's yeah, give it a couple headed, months, man. Like, give it a couple months. Yeah. There's going to be AI versions of all of us. If like people like Elon Mecca Musk George will continue to Mecca we, James Cameron. Have you guys? Yes. Oh, I hope I get Mecca James Cameron. I hope Mecca me gets that interview one day. What an honor um, for Mecca that, you. Do you guys realize though? This I, I I'm sorry. I'm keep we're in the closing, but I gotta say this. Like a lot of Twitter accounts, like once a celebrity has passed on, continue to go. Like someone else runs it. Oh, Herman Cain's there still tweeting. Doing that right now, huh? Herman Cain is still tweeting. Sorry. Yes. No. <laughs> yes. But like a lot of people, like some assistant or child, I think I've said this before, they take over or they were always doing it. Right. And I think that what's going to happen is it's going to be a bot. Damn it. Like, and it's going to be like Elon Musk is going to tweet forever. I yeah. promise you. Like he's never going to go away because he'll be the first one to have Mecca Elon Musk. Just let that sink. Just suffer with that thought for a moment. <laughs> Check out everything and more at nofilmschool.com. We love you so much. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 